Hey everyone, this is Rita, and I am so excited this Friday to be introducing you to someone that I have just had in my heart as a favorite, Jessica Latshaw, um, and I met years ago through a mutual friend, and really um, it was through her writings that I fell in love with her. She had a blog at the time that I just was mesmerized by. She just had a way of communicating And it was kind of in a language where when I read it, I was like, I get this girl. I get this girl. I loved her sense of humor and I loved her sense of just um, poetry and how she would write and talk about life in this um, in these stanzas and these phrases of humor and poetry. And so I just became a big fan. She was a dancer at the time in New York City. uh, working on a chorus line. And I just thought she lived this fascinating life. And, and then I knew that, you know, she had these beautiful rivets in her life that created um, these pockets of absolute surrender uh, that she had to go through. And so she's just been in the back of my mind as somebody when I started the podcast that I wanted to interview because of the way she sees life and because of the word choices she uses Um, that are almost like lifelines in order to see life from. So I'm really excited this week for you to meet Jessica Latshaw in this podcast as we talk about her life and her artistry and her creative expression. Hey everybody, this is Rita Springer and welcome again to the Rita Springer podcast. I am loving being able to invite people onto the show and just have conversation with them um, about a lot of different things. And this one I'm really excited about. I Jessica made such an impression on me when I met her many years ago, and I love meeting up with creative people. So um, I'm so excited to introduce you guys to um, Jessica Latshaw. Your married name, just say your married name because Terramina. Okay. Terramina. Like well, it's I've a always, place in Italy. Terramina. And mm-hmm. I've I've always known you as Jessica Latcha, but you still kind of go by Jessica Latcha. Yeah, like on, on social media. Yeah. And stuff. Social media but my so. license says Terramina if you want to check into my wallet one yeah. day. <laughs> this is like no big deal to you because you do a podcast with your husband. Oh, excuse me. This is a very big deal to me <laughs> to be on Rita Springer's podcast. Are you kidding? This is not no You're big the deal. You're professional here, Jess. You're the professional <laughs> here. You've done this way more than I've ever done. I'm still kind of trying to get in the rhythm of this because it's different than speaking at a conference or doing mm-hmm. a workshop. I mean, Mm -hmm. I did dive for 13 years. And so talking in front of an audience, you know, I I know how to do that really well, but it is kind of weird to be like by yourself in a house with a microphone. Yeah. And you're just talking to yourself. Yeah. Yeah. You're just talking to yourself. I've had to kind of get used to the rhythm of, of just when you interview people, you know, I want it to be really organic and natural. And I don't want to like come to the table with 15 million known facts. And because I want, I, I really want them to tell the story and to, um, and the podcast to go where it needs to go. I have been listening to your podcast and I love it. And you're doing mm-hmm. it so and you're sweet. telling beautiful stories that need to be heard. And, you know, I, I say you're doing this. You're already doing it. Well, you're very, very sweet. I, I know that talking to people like you who understand the 
broader scope, the broader realm of not just like creative expression uh, and having a gift, walking it out. You have your spirituality, you have, you know, your background in the church and all the beautiful things about that and all the Mm -hmm. bumps in the road with that. And then you, you, I think the thing I love about you most is that just that you were such a, um, the Lord really used you in the, you know, many years ago when I met you to just in, in conversation that he was having with me about the kinds of artistry that he was lighting up and Mm. the kinds of things that he was doing that didn't, I mean, you just, you can't place everything in the church. You know, sometimes I think as Christians and as people full of faith, we think, oh, this has to be for this. This has to be for this. And I'm such a believer that God's going to use the world. And so I loved the fact that you were, you were a legit dancer. You were, mm-hmm. you know, um, you were doing, you were doing the Broadway thing and you put everything into it. You were an incredible, you are an incredible writer. What was your blog called back then? This life. This life in writing, because um, our mutual friend, Kate Dudley. Mm-hmm, I love her. Is the one that introduced us 11 years ago. I still have, it's on my Facebook page somewhere. When you came to visit, I don't know if you stayed with Kate yeah. at the house. Mm-hmm. You-, you took you took me in, didn't even know me. <laughs> Let me sleep under your roof. You made oh, us cupcakes, the most delicious oh, cupcakes. Oh, that's right. I love that. Kate, Kate talked about you for so long. She got me hooked on your little blog. Mm. And then I remember I took a, I, I filmed, I think it was on my flip phone. I filmed um, you doing, um, I think it was like the intro to a chorus line because you were, you were still doing it. Yeah. You were on the road doing it or traveling, doing it, or you were in New York doing it or somewhere. And I just, I mean, you know, my, my past is that I wanted to be an actress. Mm-hmm. I don't think I could have done the dancing that you do, but so I've just always just thought the world of you. And so I'm like, I gotta have, Oh, Rita, it's such an honor to talk to you. And I I just, I mean, I have been listening to your music since, I mean, for for years. And it has, like, me and my friends would just be, like, wrecked in a good way by your music. I remember this one chorus, it's going to be worth it. It's going to be worth it. (laughs) We would just sing it to each other and encourage each other. And, like, you know, there's worship music that is good it's good and then there's worship music that it really feels like it connects hearts and emotions to the truth and yeah. it communicates like it gives room and breath for all of the feelings of us being a human this complex person living in a fallen world and believing yeah, in a just yeah. and true god and i feel like your songs make space and like I, when we met and I, I don't know if you want to talk about this or not, but yeah. I was going through a really hard time. Yeah, yeah. And I remember feeling like, well, this person, there's room for me to to meet her. Like just knowing her songs, at least there's room for me to meet her with a life that is really messy and not perfect and not what I dreamt of and not what my parents prayed for. And that's communicated in your songs. And so the authenticity of that has always encouraged me and made me feel like... Um, you know, there is a place in the church yeah. for honesty. Yeah, there really is. We need to actually create more space for it. Kate was so um, connected to your story. She knew that I would I would love your story. I would love what God 
has even put on you in, in the creative realm. And at that point, you, you didn't have children. Um, you were married to somebody that you're not married to now. And that was part of your crushing. And I, and right. I, I just remember one of the things that I thought of as you is how, how kind of God to give you the gift of dance and the gift of expression mm. to actually be um, a form of you to survive in the midst of such crushing. Because I, I, I think it kept you alive. 100%. I think your writing and your dancing and all that stuff really kept your blood pumping to your heart so that your heart didn't um, collapse in the process of all. Take, take me through, because I know you're, aren't your parents pastors, right? Yeah. Yeah. So you grew up in a you grew up in kind of a home of uh, as a PK kid. You've got several siblings, mm-hmm. and to just lead us into that storyline that you had to that got you into um, your dance, all the stuff that you wanted to do, you know, in New York and to yeah. where you are now. Yeah. Well, I grew up in the country in Pennsylvania in a really small world rural town. Um, my parents had been hippies, and then. They met Jesus, and um, that changed everything. And they sort of accidentally started a church, and just more and more people came into their home that they had to move it into their horse barn (laughs) and, like, make it insulated. And then more and more people, and then they have a real building or a more traditional building than a horse barn for a church. Um, And, you know, I I have to say, like, my parents— have always really encouraged me and sort of not boxed me in to only go into the quote unquote family business. Like they saw that I was this really, they saw that I was a creative person. They saw that I was actually so shy when I was a kid. I never wanted to talk to people. I never like adults, especially I never wanted to do anything in front of people. My mom started homeschooling me because I hated school so much. And she also felt like the Lord said, this one needs to be set apart. And so spend more time with her at home. Um, but at eight years old, my mom was like, Hey, you're so shy (laughs) and you're homeschooled. You need to do something. So she gave me the choice of horseback riding, swimming lessons, or ballet. They all sounded horrible to me. (laughs) Um, but I felt like ballet was the lesser of the evils because I knew I had a couple friends at church that danced and I thought, well, I guess I could survive it. But But I remember Saturday mornings, my brothers would be, I have three older brothers. I have one younger sister. They would be out playing or there'd be church kids over and they would like be having a great time. And I would have to be peeling on these hot tights. And my mom is she's not a real girly girl. So she would always try to put my hair in a bun, but it would be like it would take, you know, 20 minutes and it would hurt my head and it would just be so stressful. And then I I remember like my thick underwear showing under my tights and being like, this can't be right. But nobody knew how to help me figure that out and just going to ballet class and being like, why do I have to do this? But. Then I had a recital and it changed my life. Like I got to go on stage. I'll never forget. My mom put lipstick on me. I held a tambourine. I wore a costume and I saw an audience and I lit up and I loved it. And I smiled, not because people told me to smile, but because I could not help myself. I was so happy. And my parents Mm -hmm. were like, who is that shy little girl? Like she looks, you know, like she's illuminated on stage and that, and then I was like, okay, I'll do whatever I need to in order to do that again. And so I kept taking classes, not because I necessarily loved the class, but because I knew it was the carrot and the stick, right? Like the carrot was the stage. Right. And then I started, um, 
I started singing in church really young, like 14, and they just figured out. I would always sing with all the Disney shows, like Disney movies, and my parents were like, oh, you, you can sing on key. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have to say, like, my parents were very encouraging of me going out and getting training in real institutions, like really great schools, going away to intense, summer intensives that had, like, teachers from New York City Ballet, kids from School of American Ballet, like some of the best places, and they they weren't afraid of the quote unquote world's influence on me. Like they, they trusted the Holy spirit in me and they trusted that God had a plan that involved getting training outside of the church. And even to the point where I started getting, I went to, I went to college for dance and I graduated. I started getting bigger gigs like national tours, Broadway tour. And I wore some costumes that were like, not something you'd see at the church pageant, you know? And my, and my, my parents were very just like, we understand you're telling a story up on that stage. And even in the Bible, there's some stories that are not directive, right? They're context. Uh, yeah, yeah. And so my pop was like, haven't seen that much of your body for a long time, but like you're doing a great job. And we trust that God has you on these stages for a reason. And it was very, there was a lot of freedom in that. And there's a lot of like trusting my own decisions as I got older. Um, and I'm, I'm grateful for that. And, and, um, I don't know, even me as a parent, I can understand how you'd want to just keep your kids safe and keep them away from influences other than what you know to be true or, you know, people that might have different ideas than than what you are have as a parent. You must have been pretty good in order for them. It's almost like a like a um, an Olympic gymnast. It starts off at five and six and somebody has to have seen something in you to be like, that's not just your normal dancer. Like she's taking, she's doing this in a way that has potential. Was that always talked about when you started that there was something on you? Not when I started. I mean, I don't, I don't remember anyone even saying I was good or anything, but (laughs) it, I think I just loved performing so much that I, I knew I could, and I wanted to get roles. Like I wanted I knew that I could get better roles if I tried harder in class. Like I saw that there was a connection. And then I started noticing, um, like I remember at like 11 years old, I got accepted to a really prestigious school. I was the only one at my ballet studio that got accepted to the school. And my, my, the director took my mom aside and was like, this is a really big deal, you know, that Jess got accepted. We really think she should go. And I was super young and I went to New York by myself for like three and a half weeks to train and that kind of and then the world became really big right because I was in this small studio with the teachers that I knew and suddenly you're in this place where you're like oh I'm actually like there's so many good dancers in the world I have to work so much harder than I realize I'm this little little fish in a big sea which that's the best place to be right. right you need to put yourself there in order to be challenged it's not good to be to be the best one in the room yeah. or, you know, quote unquote, the best right. one or the more given the most talent or whatever, however you want to say it. Um, so I, that really opened my eyes and, um, and yeah, people were, and then the director there, he, um, his name's Jean-Pierre Bonafou. He danced with New York city ballet for a long time. He came from France. Um, he took me aside and he really encouraged me. He said, there's something about your expression when you yeah. dance yeah. that is really beautiful. And he said, I, I just, I can't get over you on the stage. And, those words, I mean, we talk about prophecy like it only happens 
in in these spirit-filled churches, but I I think, you know, the spirit of prophecy is a spirit of encouragement. And every good and perfect gift comes from God. And there are people in this world, they may not know it, but they prophesy to us. And they they give us these words that suddenly open up this new vision and we can move forward in ways that we couldn't before. And so, yeah, I definitely, people started talking about me performing and that that to me was always the magic sweet spot it wasn't class I worked hard in class but I didn't necessarily I love to be in front of an audience I just loved it and what about that what about the shy kid I'm curious about that you you're the shy kid that doesn't really want to have any attention on them but then when you walk out on stage and see all of these people what do you think was the magic for you that created almost you, you felt more comfortable in that, in that place, then, because that's kind of shocking that you'd be so shy. And then it's such a contrast, right? Yes, it is. Well, I feel like, I feel, I don't know. I feel like a lot of performers can be kind of introverted, right? Like they, they, like, I think we kind of need this alone time to, to kind of fill up and to do whatever we do. And then, I think that there's something about, I mean, a song is really powerful, right? Um, But there's something about the act of listening that brings it to life. And so, and, and same thing with dance and same thing with the words that you write there, you know, people, a lot of times they'll tell me, oh, I'm not musical at all, or I'm, I'm not artistic at all. And I'll be like, well, do you like to listen to music? And they'll be like, well, sure. And I'm like, that, you know, that's a gift. Mm-hmm. Listening. You are involved. Like the audience and whoever is on that stage or whatever you want to call it, but the person who's giving and the people are receiving, it's this reciprocal symbiotic relationship. And they would not be the same thing when one of those are taken out of the equation. And so I, I wouldn't have been able to articulate it, but I felt that. And I, I remember like there would be some dances that we do be funny and my pop, my dad, I call him pop, he has this very loud, distinct laugh. And I remember making him laugh. And that was like magical. It was this power. You know, kids are so, we we don't, when we're kids, we don't think we have much power. We don't have much influence. There's a lot of decisions made for us. But if you can suddenly make someone laugh or make someone feel something, you have this incredible influence. You have this agency in life that you didn't even know about. Yeah. And so I wanted to keep doing that and there was honestly Rita like people would talk about me smiling on stage and it wouldn't and in every rehearsal the the instructors would drill it smile basically like just like smile you know say it in this crazy voice that wouldn't make one anyone want to smile at all because they're so angry telling you to smile but when you I would get on stage and I just couldn't help it I felt like you know, like that hymn, the, the things of this world grew strangely dim. It was sort of like that. It was like this spiritual mm. experience or, or maybe whatever it is maybe that makes a dog able to chase a ball yeah. all day long because they're just being their authentic self. It's like I would step into that and I felt like I could breathe, I could be me, but I still social situations would still make me kind of nervous because I was like, I don't know what people are going to say and what they're going to ask me to say. And, but there was some sort of like confidence and excitement about what an audience and I could do together and the gift I could give them that, um, it was like, I can't get enough of that. Well, and I wonder too, if just, you know, you made the, you made the, the, um, comment about the, the outfits that maybe the church would never agree with in your dance, but never, but that your parents, it almost feels like your parents took the, 
attention off the outfit and put the attention back on um, the, the, the depth, the heart of it. Because I think we get so preoccupied by what things have mm-hmm. to look like as opposed to who we are in yeah. how we do it. I love that. And I actually love that example. I love that symbolism because when you said that, I, I was like, yeah, we, we would get so focused that we wouldn't be able to see the dance because, well, look at the outfit she has on. How could her parents ever? And your parents removed the stigma of the outfit to actually allow you to become the expression of what you were doing. Yeah, I love that. And it, it would minimize the effort. Yeah, I think that's that's brilliant. Yeah. I mean, it's, to me, it's a brilliant way to, to, to parent that moment, especially if your parents would have had to have seen there's something different on this girl. Mm-hmm. We've, got, we've got these kids, and on this one, this one we've been asked to set apart for this, and we've been, we've been asked for set apart of this, and she's not like the rest, so we have to go about doing it differently, which a lot of parents don't even know how to do that. Yeah. You know, I mean, I only have one one child that I only have to navigate all of his creative stuff. But, you know, watching, you know, those of you guys that parent two or three and be like, oh, my gosh, child A is so different than child C. And as parents, if we handle them in the way that God's actually directing their character and their personality, it just speaks volumes about. Um, their future, you know, their future destiny. So I love that. One thing about my parents that I really respect, they they have five kids and all five of us, we had different educations. Like I was homeschooled from second grade to graduation. Another brother was homeschooled some, then went to Christian school. Another brother went to Christian private school, his whole education. Another brother went to public school, his education, and my sister went to private Christian school, her education. So they really, everyone had an individualized, they prayed, they sought, you know, God, what is your plan for this person? And it's not easy, right? It's definitely not easy. It's not the easy way. And I mean, I'm even shocked, like, I, I have kids now, and I'm like, Mom, you homeschooled me, and you knew about school. Like, you knew yeah. that you could just take your kid, drop them off, and be like, see you in eight hours. <laughs> And I'm like, I'm just, that's incredible that you did that. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I know. Some of us are built for it and others aren't. Yep. Yes. <laughs> and some kids. Yeah. My younger sister, she and my mom would, they wouldn't have survived if she had been homeschooled. Wow. They would, they would have, they would have not had the relationship that they have today, which is a good relationship. She needed to go to school. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it, but it's so great to know that, I think. And your child kind of, kind of tells you that, you know, mm-hmm. early on. You can you can sense what they're going to do. But I I love the. It feels like your whole your whole you know even uh, precursor to to you getting married and on your own was just kind of a directive from the Lord on what you were going to do because I do believe in that. I believe that God set sets people apart in their creativity and whether it's um, you know I I always think my my sister's greatest form of worship was homeschooling her five kids. Like Mm -hmm. she poured into them from sunup to sundown. And that was her form of worship and her form of, of creative expression. She sang in the, in the church choir and that was how she did it. Everybody has a form of that. Some others, you know, are, are, have platforms attached to it. Totally. Did you end up graduating, um, at a dance school? Yeah. And then I, I, uh, was a dance major at UArts in Philly. And so, I graduated from there and, um, yeah. And then went on to just start auditioning in New York and, um, got to sort of like 
bring my worlds because I'd always done concert dance, which there's nobody talks or sings. They just, you know, they dance. It's awesome. Um, but I had been singing a lot in the church. I had been writing music. And I remember talking to one of my favorite professors at school when I, right as I was graduating. I was like, I just don't know. I, I love music so much and I love dance. And he was like, well, do some musical theater. He was like, try it out. And so it was so I did. I started auditioning and and I loved it. I really loved it. Now, you were trained in ballet, though, right? Mm -hmm. So did you ever think about doing like ballets? I mean, is that what you were? Is that what your projection was toward? So I, I, I think there was something there was something inside of me. First of all, ballet is really elite and it's very consuming. And I knew that I knew that I wanted to. I wanted I I knew that I wanted to have a voice. I wanted to to somehow talk and tell stories that aren't just seen in ballet companies. Um and I suspected that that just life wasn't really for me by around 18. I started to like feel disillusioned by it. I started to like hate the just the strictness of like I don't know if the word strict is, but there's very specific kinds of bodies that that do well in ballet and and I mean I had some encouragement I in that, but I I just didn't think, I didn't know that I could really make it. And I didn't know that I really wanted to do that. And so I decided, I remember I was in Philadelphia and I was walking past UArts, University of Arts. And I saw all these really cool, edgy looking kids with like different color hair sitting on the steps, like just looking like they didn't, you know, too cool to care about anything. And I was like, I think I need to be there. And I, I didn't really know why, but I cut my hair off and decided to be a modern dance major. And my first day of college, I had this bright blue L.L. Bean book bag. And I was like super embarrassed because everyone had black. Everyone was wearing, you were an artist and you were wearing black. And I am not, I, it's a little bit embarrassing to share now, but I got rid of that blue book bag on the first day. I walked into a store and I got a black one and that was my book bag. And I tried to just like look cool and do whatever I thought a modern dancer looked like. And I cut my hair so short that I didn't, I couldn't even put it in a bun anymore. And, um, that was like, I just decided I was not going to be a ballerina. I didn't know what I was going to be, but it wasn't going to be a ballerina. It was going to be something more interesting. And you felt like that was a good move. Like that was your next move for your future. Yeah. I felt like I was either going to stop dancing or figure out something other than ballet. So, like, when did you head to New York after you graduated? After I graduated, um, I started I started working at a little dinner theater in Delaware, and that's where I started. Like, like I started with musicals, and I I was the only one. They were all like people that loved musicals, and I didn't even really listen to musicals or didn't know much about musicals. And so, everyone I remember the music director would be like. The first show we did actually was a chorus line, which is funny because that was like my Broadway contract was finally a chorus line a couple years later. But um, they would be like, OK, one. And he's like, you all know this song, right? And I would always be like, I've never heard it. <laughs> He'd be like, how have you never heard of one? Right. And so he basically teach it to me while everyone else was like, one. They all know it. Right, right. Um, and I sort of like cut my teeth at this small um, dinner theater and they were super kind to me and. I loved it. And they were like, you need to go to New York. You need to, you've got something special. Mm -hmm. And I started auditioning in New York and there was one audition that went really well. And I just 
some auditions, they, they just, they spend a lot of time with you. And it's back to that, like, if they give you a critique, you know that there's some, they think there's something worth it. And so they were asking me to do all these different combinations, to sing different songs. And I walked out of there thinking, that was cool. Like, they spent a lot of time. Turned out the director for this casting agency knew one of the guys who owned that dinner theater that I worked, the little dinner theater in Delaware, called him, said, I have this Jessica Latchaw. She seems really talented. What can you tell me about her? Is she good to work with? And like, isn't that like God? No, totally. We do one thing, right? Thinking that it's this one thing. And we and and God's like, you have no idea where this is going to lead. Like, I have this plan. I have a con- we see one star and he has a constellation and he connects the dots. And so it was through the guy was like, oh, she's great to work with. We love her, um, which is super kind. And then I ended up working in Korea for a couple of months doing Fame the Musical. Wow. And um, that was an amazing experience. And, and then I ended up from there touring the States with the Will Rogers Follies, which is this like tap show. A lot of it is tap and I wasn't a tapper. And they like held my hand and babysat me through the tap audition, trusting that I would get it. And from there, I I think I booked the Broadway tour of A Chorus Line. And um, that was like a really big deal and really exciting. And um, I mean, it was all life-changing. Like every, I think, and it's funny, you think about a, a gig or a job as like something for your career. And then, you know, God's like, haha, just kidding. I'm actually going to introduce you to these people that you're going to love so much and, and you're going to connect with. And there's going to be this relation, these relationships that grow and form. And that's going to be actually more important than the stages that you were coming here for the first place. And so I, I got to go live with these people that, um, I didn't know the first day I walked into rehearsal on 42nd Street and I was super intimidated by them and they all seemed beautiful and smart and like they'd probably been doing this forever. And I was like, I'm from this rural town and I didn't grow up on musical theater. And um, but here I am and I gained friendships that I I still have and I love them so dearly. And um, we had so many dark, uh, so many deep conversations and I had people tell me like, my one good friend, he was like, Jessica, you're not a Christian. And I was like, well, actually, I am a Christian, though. And he was like, no, no, you're not. And I was like, but I love Jesus. And, you know, I, I follow Jesus. And he was like, so? He was like, you're not judgmental. You really love me. And he was like, I can't, there's, there's no way. He was like, I just can't put you in the definition of Christian. And I said, well, that's okay. You know, as long as you just know that I love Jesus. And he was like, well, I think I might love Jesus too. He was like, is that what a Christian is? Yeah. <laughs> so I was like, oh, yeah. And I had conversations. I had a lot of conversations like that. And a lot of, um, a lot of, you know, like it's really interesting in this, in, I feel like in the temperature of our culture, if people have a, any kind of inner conviction that makes you think, makes you separate a little bit. Other people might see that as judgmental or on the extreme violence or, um, you know, hateful. And this wasn't my experience with this group of people where we were all very different. And I was the only Christian, um, the only, I would say, like disciple of Christ. And they, they loved me and they were like, 
they didn't even offer me drugs because they were like, she's not going to do, you know, like she's not going to do that, but she'll dance with us and she'll, you know, she'll play her songs for us and she'll, she'll laugh with us. And, and it was like this really incredible dance that we learned together where we really respected each other and listened to each other and had true friendships, but it didn't mean that we all always agreed with each other, yeah, which, yes. um, I, I loved it. I mean, I, I love that. And I, I have, I feel like um, I learned so much from them. I grew so much from them. And, and again, it was the people that I worked with more than getting to do this iconic show, yeah. which obviously yeah. I, I was honored to do. You know, it, it so reminds me, I'm not a big dreamer, like at night, I think it's because I'm so tired. <laughs> I, I want to be left alone for a good six hours. <laughs> this is your but, off time. <laughs> yeah, it's my off time. But it's had to have been like, oh, I want to say, you know, maybe 15 years ago, maybe longer than that. But I had this dream. It's probably pre-justice, but um, I I had this really crazy dream that I, I was dreaming about this ballet dancer. I didn't know her name in the dream. I was just almost like the audience of her life. Wow. And I was watching her and she... She was, she just was, she had it, like she had something. And I, I was kind of watching this film of her life, um, you know, came from a family of faith and just burning, burning, burning to dance. And so as she danced throughout her life, she ended up getting accepted to Juilliard wow. in New York. And so this dream just followed her into, you know, this very, very difficult world of dance and like you're saying, it's so interesting that you're saying what you're saying because she she was surrounded by, by these beautiful people in the world that had no understanding of her faith or no kind of connection to her faith. But they were all drawn to her, not because she professed her faith in this dream, but because when she'd walk into a room, her faith just followed her in her feet. And when she danced, like even the, the, the dream the the um the footage of the dream would, would kind of um, center into the way her feet would spin and dance and something would happen in the room hmm. with just her the way that she would dance like her spirit would almost like spin out of her feet and so it wasn't as if she was going around declaring the gospel to people she was actually around some of the most lost people in this dream I could tell oh my gosh these these don't look like your normal church folk. And um, and she danced and danced and, and got favor and favor. And then um, the dream kind of ended where she she was given the lead to Swan Lake. And 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 that was the big announcement that she got the lead to Swan Lake. And and it was opening night of the New York Ballet. And she appeared on the stage and as the lead to Swan Lake in this dream that I was having. And. As she came out and took the, the floor of that stage and she began to do her routine, all of a sudden the dream ends and it's the headline to the, to the New York um, Post the next day. And the headline just read, Dancer takes stage and weeping breaks out in the audience and people start declaring the name of the Lord. And I just woke up from this dream wow. and just started sobbing. And I was like, and felt the Holy Spirit. And I just was like, Lord, talk to me, tell me. What, what I'm, I'm dreaming. And he said, oh, the day is coming 
when it makes me cry thinking about it. I mean, it's like, oh, the day is coming when I'm going to so use the arts that the church won't know what to do with the artist because the artist won't need to proclaim with their mouth. They'll just put their gifting on the stage mm-hmm. and let me speak through their gifting. And I, I'm just like, I feel like I've spent the last, you know, I think maybe it was almost 20 years ago I had that dream. I just like looking for the ballet dancer, like looking for the dancer and looking for the artist and looking for the writer yeah. that's willing not to be packaged with what I think sometimes like, the church won't let you pass the costume. Yeah. You know, they'll be so, they'll be so stuck on the costume and not to say that, that, you know, being provocative or anything, it's, I'm not saying that that's okay or whatever for those people that are like, Oh my gosh. Sure. But we get so stuck on the outer appearance Mm -hmm. that we, we stop actually realizing what actually the gifts do for us and what, what the Lord can do. I mean, he's the great artist, right? He's the great artist that just stood in an, in the abyss and created all of this beauty. And to give, just to give you a little sample of it in dance or to, to touch my throat, to, to write what I'm writing and sing what I'm singing. It, it's not, it's, it's not lost on the Lord to be able to do that for s- some greater purpose, you know? So when you, when you're telling your story, I'm like, Oh my gosh, she's the ballet dancer. She's the because I feel like that's what you're saying, you know. I, and I think that, I mean, I think, you know, looking for glimpses of that spirit is, you know, I think I think that you are too. I think that yeah. that the artists that that have this connection with Christ, it's like that it's part of our calling to tell to tell the story yeah. of who God is, of what he does and you know, I, I love that. I don't know. I wish I knew who said it, but somebody said, um, preach the gospel and sometimes use words. Yeah. And I, I love that. I think that dream, that dream gave me chills. And I think that the arts are so powerful and communication and storytelling yes. and, you know, transcend like this taking people, taking all of us out of wh- whatever four walls we're in to another place. And that's what the arts do. And I... Yeah. I love it. I mean, it's an honor to to be any part of it. And also, like you were talking about before, it is life saving. I mean, it is really. It's it's like I don't I don't think I would have survived without. Yeah, because when you're in that, you're. When did you get married? Did you get married in the course of graduating college and and going to New York? Yeah, I got married um, right ap- a little bit after college, and um, and then started performing with my my ex at the time was really supportive and you know he he married me yeah because he wasn't in the wasn't in the business right he wasn't Mm -hmm. in the dance business or the acting no no and um I mean he was a musician but not not um not auditioning or not doing anything like that but he was really supportive and he was really rejoicing with me when I got these gigs and when the jobs got bigger and more exciting and um yeah he was very very supportive and I I never knew until afterwards when everything fell apart and I guess he started being a little bit honest that he you know that he wasn't fully supportive but he never told me that he always acted really supportive how do I say this he really appreciated the, the the money that I was making and that was that was that was something that he supported but um I noticed that 
things started changing. Um, I was flying to Japan and he had just started to get more, he started to get more distant and he would say things like, oh, I'll call you, you know, at this time we can talk. And he just wouldn't be around. I wouldn't be able to find him. I'd text, I'd whatever. And he just wouldn't be there. And um, I didn't, like, it was just like we were missing each other and not really communicating. And, and then it seemed like, it seemed like he wasn't fully telling the truth. And, but it, he would always be like, no, 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 I, you're, you're misunderstanding the situation. And so there was a lot of confusion. Um, oh, and I, I'll, I remember I was flying to Japan um, to do a course line over there. And I had this thought come into my head that just, you know, we sometimes have these thoughts that you're like, this didn't come from me. So it's like, it's either the enemy or, or God, or I don't know what's going on. But I had this really clear thought that just was like, he, you know, my ex, it was just, he would not care if this plane went down. And I was like, that's really weird. I don't have those thoughts. He loves me. Like, he absolutely loves me. Why am I thinking these things? Like, I don't want that. That's such a dark, terrible thought. Um, and then I just started going through this time. Like, I remember I would just um, listen to this one song that was about, like, relationships working out over and over and over again. And I would just try to talk to him, and he wouldn't be there. And... Um, if we would, he would be very distracted, and it was it was really confusing. And um, I spent a lot of time crying silently, like when no one was around. Um, and then I I came home, and things got like. And then I was touring in the states again, and things just got worse and worse. And finally, um, I finally like I remember. I was coming home like the tour was ending and I had told him before, like, do I need to stop my job? Like, I'll stop my job. You're my priority. And he said, no, no, absolutely not. And he was like, we can't afford it either. Like, you need you need this job. And so I was like, OK, so but are we going to be OK? Because you, we are my you are my priority. It's, it's just a job. And he said, absolutely, we'll be OK. We'll be OK. And so um, I I get back to the Philadelphia airport and my parents are there. And I was like. Where, where is my husband? And they were like, he, he said he hurt his arm and he couldn't come. And I said, he, he couldn't, he can't drive? And they were like, no. And they, they were acting like so um, falsely cheerful, like trying to act like everything was normal. And so huh. they drove me home and they were like, you, you know, if you need anything, you can call us. And I said, okay, mom and pop, absolutely. <laughs> like, it's always been that way. And they're like, you, and you, if you need to come to our house. And I said, I know where you live. Like, they were just acting really strange. Yeah. And um, so I go into where we live, my ex and I at the time, and he's there and he's really reserved. And I I was like, hey, I'm, I'm home. I'm back. And he was like not hugging, not smiling. And he was like, yeah, that's good. That's good. And um, we got a phone call from somebody that we both know. And they were like, I is Jessica there? And he said, yes. And she was like, I need to be put on speakerphone. And she basically said, it, it has been, someone told me that you are having an affair with so-and-so. Wow. Is this true? Oh gosh. And I was like, my bags were just not even unpacked. And, um, he just started, um, 
you know, denying it. And he kept saying 110%. That's not true. And I was like, why the extra 10%? But, and then um, she just hung up and my life changed forever. And I, um, you know, he kept telling me it wasn't true, but I was like, but things have been really weird. Mm -hmm. And of I, I don't think it's probably true, but things have been really weird. And then we went up to our bedroom and he fell asleep. And um, I mean, this is like pretty graphic, but I found um, a, a used mm -hmm. condom by our bed. And it was like, you know, it was, um, it was recent. And so I just, I woke him up and I said, I just want you to know I've really loved being married to you. And mm -hmm. I was like strangely calm. Yeah. And then I just took all my stuff and um, I didn't even know like what to do with myself. <laughs> so I, I tried to slam the door because, because he had fallen back asleep and I was like, I don't even understand how I can sleep right now. Mm -hmm. He kept telling me that it wasn't true. And so I finally, I finally went back to, I finally did fall asleep. And then I woke up to the door slamming and he was driving away in his Jeep and I could hear it. And I called him over and over and over again and he, he wouldn't answer. And he finally did, like maybe the 15th time, and he said, everything's true, and mm -hmm. I love her, and not you, and you'll never see me again. And it was really complex because it was um, somebody that is in my family, mm -hmm. and so it was like, it was this unbelievable story that suddenly someone handed to me, and, and I was like, I don't, none of this is recognizable. Um, so I called my mom, and my parents came and my mom just kept saying, I remember she just kept saying, there's no book for this. Like uh, there's no book for yeah. this kind of scenario. Um, I don't know, you know, there's no like pamphlet that tells you how to walk out mm -hmm. of it. And it was like, it was like a time in my life that was like, I know everything before and now there's everything after. Yeah. And, um, and things just started changing. But I will tell, I will tell you that, it is so incredibly important to have community, to have people who know you and who love you well enough to come into your life and be with you in grief. You know, because that is that is really uncomfortable for some people. Mm -hmm. They they don't think that any that someone who's really going through this dark night of the soul wants to be around anyone, and so they just kind of give the, you give you space. And what you really need is people to come in and tell you the truth because mm -hmm. you can't see you you just cannot see. And I had. A very dear friend who would who came in and like literally held my hand and told me that God had a plan and told me that he wouldn't even say good night because he said there's nothing good about this night for you. I'm not gonna say good night, but I'm gonna tell you that God has a plan for you and that there is a story in your life that is gonna be worth telling and worth listening to. Yeah. And he said, and I, I believe in that plan and I'm so sorry for your suffering and your grief. And he was angry also for the, you know, just the, the, the pain that someone's choices, two people's choices had caused. Um, and I had one of my brothers took a red eye, flew from LA to Pennsylvania, stayed up with me all night that night and just talked and talked and talked and told me the same kind of true things. He said, this does not define who you are. And he's, you know, and he's my brother. And he said, and I'm walking you to, we're going to go get you a divorce tomorrow. 
me, he doesn't care about the laws. Mm-hmm. Like these things take time. He's like, we're getting you a divorce tomorrow, and we're gonna make sure that this guy has nothing to do with you. And I was like, mm-hmm. whoa, whoa. I was like, geez, I actually, I don't know. I don't know that I want to get a divorce. Mm-hmm. And he was like, you're absolutely getting a divorce. And I was like, geez, I, I, I'm me. I'm not someone who's divorced. Mm-hmm. Like I don't. How can I suddenly be the, a person who's divorced? And he was like, he was kind of like, okay, but you can't be married to him anymore. So I don't know how you can not be married to him and not be divorced. And I, and finally I was like, I just, I can't, like, I think I need some time because it was only like the next day. And he was like, okay, I'll give you time. And so, and my, my mom, there was this counselor that had worked with their church for different things and they trusted him. My mom was like, can you please just meet with this counselor? And I said, Sure. I mean, I'll meet with it. Whatever. Yeah, Whatever yeah. you think is helpful. I'm dead inside. Sure. Yeah. I'll meet with an elephant if that's helpful yeah. to you. <laughs> so I walk. I, I meet this 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 counselor. He's really kind. He's Jessica. You know, I know a little bit of what, hap- what happened, but why don't you just tell me your story? And I take a deep breath, and it's it's very convoluted story, and I will say that I was one of the last people to find out about what was going on. And so all of my people— they knew. I mean, that's why my parents were being so strange. That's why they all knew. So I hadn't been able to actually even the gift of telling my story. And so I sat in front of this man and I told him from the beginning to now. And I, I remember he was like taking notes halfway through, but like maybe an hour into it, he quietly put his notebook down in his bed and he just, just listened. And, and he said, I think you really need to tell somebody your yeah. story. And I said, yeah, I think so. And, and he said, Jessica, let me tell you this you're going to be okay. Mm. And I said, oh, thank God. I said, so so you think my marriage is going to be okay? And he said, no, hon, I didn't say that. And he said, but I absolutely know that our God, his ability to heal broken hearts, he does that. I see that mm. over and over and again. He said, I would actually be surprised if your marriage was okay. But he said, you will be okay, even if your marriage is not okay. And that planted a thought in my head, like, okay, well, maybe my marriage could not be okay. But it was so, um, it was so devastating. And we were, we were, um, we both were on the worship team, you know, when I was home. We were both on the worship team, me and my ex, and and both very involved with church. And everybody, everybody in the situation was involved in church. And so it felt, um, I felt a real profound sense of shame when I, when I went to church, because everybody sort of looked at me pityingly. And I would, I would go, they would let me sing, which was really actually like this life-giving bread to be able to just worship. And, but I was so afraid of the part that was like, everybody talk to each other or go to the women's bathroom and, and meet people and talk to people or all the things that weren't scripted that I would literally do worship and then I would run out the back door and just leave because I couldn't, I couldn't face people at that Mm -hmm. time. I couldn't face their questions. Where's your husband? We haven't seen him in a while. I just wasn't ready. I was, I felt like this big wound. And if you looked at me for two seconds, I would start crying. And I just wasn't ready for that to be a story that everyone knew. Um, And so, but I will say that, that, that there were people that just breathed life by their words, by their constant encouragement, like people in the church that that I wasn't even very close to. I mean, Rita, this is sort of skipping ahead, but um, just recently, so I, I'm, I have been remarried. I have this wonderful husband named TJ that I couldn't have dreamt of up. And um, he and I recently moved back to this area where I grew up and we're back at the church where my parents pastor. Wow. And it's this really special season yeah. in our life. 
Um, and we had this we had this couple over that he was the the man. His name is Paul. He did worship with me years and years ago. He's a musician, really sweet guy. And in this conversation that we were having just recently, he looks around at our home. He looks at our children. He looks at TJ, and he says, "I just need you to know that when Jessica was going through." her pain, her suffering, her marriage ending, I've never prayed for someone as hard as I prayed for her. And he said to be able to see this other side, to be able to see a man who is in her life who loves her well, to see her living in a home, to see her joy. And he said, I just, people aren't normally like allowed to see their prayers like this. And he was like, I'm just blown away. And to me, Rita, that that is community, that is church. That is like people who are really walking with each other in in hardship and and I, and this is another thing and, and just stop me if you need to if you need to say something <laughs> but um, there there's some other churches I've been involved with and I, and and I get it I understand there's like formalities and and yeah. church is this institution that you have to run but I was part of this worship this other church and they were teaching us how to worship and I remember um, and this was another time of real deep grief in my life and. We might talk about it, but I, I have a, a baby who died at nine months gestation. And so I was part of this church. It was in Boston and I was part of worship and I was really going through a, a deep grief. And I remember them saying, we want you to look really happy when you worship and we want your faces to look a certain way. We want your bodies to look a certain way. And, and I just, I remember this time where my marriage has fallen apart and my life looks nothing like I thought it would ever. And I'm so profoundly ashamed. And I would go to the church after hours and I would turn on one light and I would turn on the keyboard and I would just worship. And it would be tears and worship. And it would be this lifeline to being able to be actually okay. And then they would let me worship on Sunday morning and I would not be the happiest person up there, but I would be worshiping with this like truth saying my feelings are one way, but God, I trust your word. And I trust that you are the one that is so creative that you can make a road in the ocean, in the sea, where it looks like there's nowhere to go. You'll make a road for me. And that was again, life-giving. So there's something about worship that happens in grief that is so powerful. And, 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 you know, it doesn't always look happy. No, it's, it's interesting, too, that, you know, you're making so many beautiful points. Um, the, the integrity of, of honesty, like there's, there's a, a beautiful integrity that's knit into honesty, where honesty is, is what it is because what it gives off and, and the permission that it gives people to, to honor what it is they're in the midst of. And I think sometimes in the church, we can, and the church is a beautiful place, but there are moments where we can try to tutor and foster an attitude of, we need you to look this way, because if you look this way, then you will fulfill what we need people to come in here and feel. And the reality, it's a disservice to people when when you're in the midst of grief or sorrow in, in some of the most um, tell soul tell telling things that actually pull people into the presence of the Lord when we're when we're using our honesty, even your honesty in telling your story of, of finding your husband out. Like I just have a feeling that even when people hear that, they're gonna be there's gonna be a a relating that women do where it's like, oh my gosh, this is my story. I mean, I can't tell you how many young women I've sat down with who've had 
this same encounter with their marriages. Not to say that all marriages end in divorce, but there are some marriages that you pretty much know from the gate whether or not it's going to be saved or it's not going to be able to be saved. And I mean, we're all for a marriage that can be restored. Absolutely. But sometimes when a marriage can't be restored, we have to hold on to the God who restores everything in the end. And that's what I love about, about you being able to actually go back to people that knew that storyline and had prayed in that storyline to be able to say, hey, look, this is, a, this is a, a testimony to me that my prayers for you transformed. And then to, to, to really, you know, give the beautiful example. You guys, it's why I stay in worship. It's why I, I've stayed behind, not behind an instrument, but why that instrument has held the, the, the ocean of my wounds and the ocean of my tears because there's nothing like a moment when nobody can say anything, nobody can do anything. I have no words left anymore. I'm just going to be obedient to sit there and let the worship take its effect and let the power of God be what the power of God is meant to be. And that, I think, that's just, it's so profound. I, I just, I feel even through your story, because, you know, that that's not your now story. Like your now story, even though, and with the loss of Luca, your son, and the three daughters that you have now, and um, the book that you're, you know, you're in the midst of releasing, that's really become your now story. But this backstory, what I love about your backstory is that it sets you up for your future story and that the enemy didn't get you to, to be silent in the backstory because isn't that what the whole goal was? If we can pull her out of herself and pull her into a place where she doesn't feel like she deserves anything and that that even her gifting has failed her marriage because if she'd been home and she'd been doing this and not been on the road and not been doing what she felt called to do. I mean, it's just like people have said that to me in the yeah. in the church. Mm-hmm. I remember. I mean, and, and not like not people that I necessarily felt like were my pastors or leaders, but. You know, people and but I I, I love what you said about um, like, you, you know, we we love the church and we love the things that we do in the church. But I, I think I wonder if there's something about um, when you see something that works once, you know, like like worship is joyful because of who God is and, and the joy of the Lord is my strength. Yeah. You like as humans, I think we are just made to sort of mimic, right? Mimic, to like just yeah. keep to yeah. put it into a formula. Like let's do this all the time. And you see that. You see that in in mega churches. You see that like it, it becomes a sort of like corporate idea. This is our brand. This is what we're gonna do. This sells. This works. And you know, God is not formulaic. No, like no, Jesus, all of his encounters with people were different. Yeah. He didn't heal one way. He didn't talk to people one way. And so there's a lot of, um, it gets messy because we have this idea of what church should be because what works. But sometimes I love what you said about letting God just be God, let his spirit come and do what he, and it's like, I don't have any words and I'm not in charge of this. I'm not controlling this. I'm just so grateful to be here. And so so maybe sometimes that looks like somebody who's grieving and worshiping at the same time and their face might look different than what we think of as church. But isn't that refreshing? Because God is not a formula. 
And when you capture that, it almost, it, I feel like it breaks the back of the religious spirit. Because when you get that back broken off of a religious spirit, then all of a sudden you're like, oh, this is a relationship. This is a yeah. relationship that, that I'm in with the Lord and the Lord's in with me. And together we're making this journey and we're finding things out together, which, which that in of itself, I mean, for me, that, that revelation of, oh, this is not religion, this is a relationship, actually, you know, propels you into a completely different state of being with God because there's, there's the, the performance is kind of over and, and you're, you're in it to win it for the sake of what it actually can do to benefit your spirit and benefit your soul um, as opposed to feeling like you're checking off boxes, you know, with, with the whole religious thing. You, you started writing, you must have been a journaler probably as a young woman, but you, you, you're writing, I mean, your writing is so beautiful. I remember reading that blog of yours back in the day and thinking, I, I, I wish that she would like, like be a, like an author to books because you're the type of writer that is so, um, it's, you're, you're just, the way that you draw people in with the imagery, imagery that you create with your, with your words, but also the explanation of your soul. It's almost as if you have a way to explain your predicament or your thought process, or, you know, that this one season that you're in, that it's just so incredibly moving. Even your Instagram posts, which is, looks like your Instagram posts are where you're kind of pouring out your, your writing now. But did you find yourself, did, was that writing, did that writing tend to grow in the midst of that? Um, circumstance where you had to find another outlet be, beside the stage to actually let your grief out. Yeah, I think that, I think, this is a, a theory of mine, I think that creativity is like problem solving and, and, and sometimes our problems are like, well, who is God and why is life so hard? And, and sometimes I feel like for me, creativity has really been this like trying to reconcile grief with a God who is so good and so kind and a life that's worth living. And so I remember um, I had started that blog and I wrote in, I wrote every day because I just I've always loved reading and writing. And I have so many journals of when I was growing up and just filling pages. And um, and I started this blog when I started touring to just kind of keep keep in touch with everybody and and it was really fun for me and um and then I found out what was happening in my marriage and I remember my friend and I I didn't stop writing I just kept on writing and I was and I it got sadder (laughs) it got like you know and I and I was writing honestly and but I remember the day that I found out I was writing and and there's something about um you know this age old question, like, well, okay, do artists wait for the muse or do they, or can they use discipline? And I, and I believe in discipline. I believe in this, this ritual, like this daily ritual of what you do. And thankfully that was established. I was someone who wrote every day. And so I continued to write. And I remember my friend told me, Jess, you know, my husband said, cause he knew what was going on, that you just found out that, that, that these two people that you love very much were having an affair and that your marriage was over. And he said, and she said, and he can't believe that you're posting on your blog. <laughs> and I was like, am I supposed to stop? Am I also not allowed? Like my marriage is over, but maybe not my life. Right, right, <laughs> I'm still right. alive. Can I keep writing? But it actually became um, 
it was the thing that kept, like, I understand uh, for the first time in my life, I, I had so much pain. I would experience so much pain that I was like, I don't, I don't actually know how I can do this. Like I, I would call my friends just sobbing and not being able to talk. And, and I understood why people turn to drugs and sex and anything that allows them to escape anything because this, you can't stay here. You can't stay in a place that hurts so much. And thankfully by God's grace for me, writing became something that I was able to escape. It was really a place that I could breathe again. And it was also, it's really interesting because trauma and um, grief and all these things, they're right back here at like the back of your brain, the amygdala. And it, and writing about it, just writing about how I feel became this like puzzle to solve, which is a different part of your brain. And it brought it up here to the problem solving part of my brain. And it, it suddenly felt like I had some agency again. And I wasn't just this victim and I was able to choose my words. And I remember just like, I felt different. I felt different being able to just literally describe how I felt and like choose the words that I needed. And it was like solving this problem and I could solve it. And I could, I felt like, okay, I can breathe again. And it really felt, and then there was another thing that happened. Um, I, my sister-in-law owns um, a, like a dance school, dance company. And she asked me in that time, she said, we need somebody to choreograph a piece. Um, we're going for this, I don't know, some sort of thing. And she said, would you consider doing it? And I remember being like, oh, I don't, I don't do anything. I'm grieving, full-time grieving. I don't do anything right now. <laughs> and she was like, well, we could pay you. Um, just think about it. And I remember just, I just remember thinking, say yes, say yes. And so that got me, I committed to something and I, I, I had to move my body and I had to listen to this music and I choreographed a piece about me, about my life. And I chose a girl to be the lead. She's a beautiful dancer. And I had to work with dancers and I had to be this not wreck for at least a couple hours a week. And I had to be someone that like could explain to other people what to do. And that was an incredible gift too. And I saw this piece come together that was really beautiful. I dedicate, I like, it was for my brother. It was like, thanks to him who had flown from LA and walked through this with me. And um, that was something that was really powerful also for me to be able to do that. And so I completely understand people needing, you just, people needing to leave their situation because sometimes the suffering feels like, I don't understand how a body can be alive and feel this at the same time. I don't get it. And so- um, that has been, I don't exaggerate when I say it's a lifeline. I mean, absolutely, absolutely a lifeline. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I said in one of my earlier, um, podcasts, I, I told the story about how the Lord said to me, he didn't, um, he wasn't on Prozac when he created the universe. And basically what he was saying is I, I didn't need to be distressed or in grief to create what I created but yeah. I actually allow you to find the resource in that when you are at your worst, you know, when, mm -hmm. when your soul is at, at its at its lowest point. So while while I, I look at that, and I'm like, oh my gosh, if we can create and still do and go after and use the resource of of creative expression to to be the thing that almost like sings over us in our grief. And that we find great, you know, um, you know, sometimes it's in the people's worst nightmares that they paint the, the greatest paintings, you know. And it's like if if 
if if that is a gift from the Lord, then what happens in our redemption and in our healing if we then go back after and turn toward the gift to say, now give me what you've got in my joy? You know, that's the part I'm I'm really waiting for people to to embellish on is no man, when I got through with that, I mean I did all these amazing award-winning things while I was struggling with anxiety and fear and depression, all these things, but look what I did when I came out of it, you know? Yeah. So I'm, I'm waiting for those stories, but I think it's because in our head, we either think we have to be silent and wear the black cloth mm-hmm. and completely detach from everything, because what would people think if we did this mm-hmm. while we've been through that, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And um, so, yeah, it's, it's really interesting. You, you then, I mean, you get through this, obviously. How many years after that did you meet TJ and, and end up getting married? I had been living in my parents' basement, and I was kind of, I was kind of like, I, it, it, it derailed me. Like, I, I just didn't know what I was going to do and how I was going to make money. And, um, and a dear friend from Chorus Line called me up and said, hey, Jess, um, you're too talented to hide in your parents' basement forever. And he said, you need to move to New York City. And I said, okay, great idea. I was like, I, I can't afford that. And he was like, well, I've got an out-of-town gig for three months. Can you afford to live in my apartment for free? And I said, I guess I have to. Okay. So I, it felt like another little bit of grief to, because I always thought that I would move to New York City with my ex um, and I, I boarded like the Chinatown bus with a couple of instruments and one suitcase. And I just went by myself. And I remember, I remember like being in the back of the bus, just looking around and being kind of scared and kind of like, this is not what I dreamt of. This is not what I dreamt of. And, but doing it and just doing it sad and doing it scared. Yeah. And my friend had mailed me the keys and I just, I found his apartment and it was this tiny little studio apartment in Chelsea And I started to, I, first of all, I threw myself into like every class that I could take, like every kind of Mm -hmm. fitness class that I could take. And then also every open mic I could find, I just went and sang my songs. And um, I had made this decision like a while ago that if anyone ever asked me to share anything that I do, I'll say yes. And so, so that's what I would do. And um, I started to like realize that, I kind of liked what life looked like through my eyeballs again one day. And I remember waking up being like, I'm not hurting. And that was incredible because I had been hurting for a long time. And I was like, there's nobody in my life who's hurting me. Everybody in my life, I feel like, I feel like they love me. And that was an amazing revelation. And just like the sounds and the rhythm and the energy of New York City, it's just this motion, this constant motion. And people go there to follow their dreams. And then you're sitting on the subway and you're like, the whole thing is this metaphor. You're squished next to everybody and everybody's annoyed, but they're there for a dream. And, you know, there's so many different languages. And I just remember falling in love with this energy. And I'm like, I can't believe I get to be here too. Like that's, that's incredible. And, um, there was one night that I was waiting for the for the subway, for the A train, which is the express, and I had a ukulele on my back. And I had just taken a yoga class, and there were these buskers that were sitting there waiting. I guess, I don't know what they were doing, but they were buskers like play music for money on the train. And so they were talking to me, and then they were like, can we get your number? One of them said, and I was like, oh, I don't give my number to strangers, but you're welcome to give your number to me. 
And then my train comes up and um, the guy was like, hey, 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 I didn't get to give you my number. And I said, well, you can come on the train with me if you want, but I got to get this train. Can't wait all day for the A train. And so I got on the train and they got on the train and they said, do you play that ukulele? And I said, yeah, I can play it. And they said, okay, well, why don't you play something? And I said, and they said, we'll play with you. And I said, well, okay, as long as it's in four, we can do that. (laughs) And so it was this really crazy New York City moment. I started playing one of my songs on the ukulele. The other guy, one of the guys was playing the, um, like this big bongo. And then the, the other guy was just kind of like a hype man. And somebody took out their phone and recorded the whole thing. And I got to play the whole song. And it was like, really interesting like I'm this white girl and I was started rapping in the song and the chorus was sung and then these guys had long like braids kind of looked Rastafari it was this really cool like New York City moment right it was on the subway of all places and so the guy who recorded it he put it on YouTube and it became this viral thing and like within a week it had a million hits and it was really crazy I started getting all these people reaching out to me Good Day New York wanted me to come perform that's like the local news and so I just did it again. I was just saying, yes, 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 I'll, whatever. I'll go someone at a birthday party in Queens. They want to be my, I did it. And TJ, um, who is my husband now, he was working for Elvis Duran in the Morning Show, which is the biggest show in New York City. And he was co-hosting. And he reached out to me on Facebook. And I didn't listen to the radio. I didn't have a car. I didn't know who he was. And he, but he asked me if he could interview me um, because of the story. And he was working for, he had a podcast for the show. And so I said, sure. So I, I met him and there was something about him that was different. Like I, I thought that it was so interesting that he was working in this creative space, but he was also this technical engineer too. Like he was EQing mics and like making sure everything was perfect. And I just remember, and he said something in the interview. So our first conversation is on tape. It's, it was an interview and he said something about, I was reading your blog and I noticed that you talk about faith and that you pray. And I said, yeah. I do. And he said, I pray too. And I kind of was just like in my mind, like, yeah, right. Which is so rude. But I was like, didn't really think that he probably had faith. And because I just don't expect to meet people in that atmosphere that, that could sort of like, I don't know, match my, my values and, and my faith. And so, but there was something about him that I couldn't stop thinking about. And so I wrote him this really long, um, horribly embarrassing email asking him to be my friend and specifying that I don't want to date him, which is like so embarrassing. You don't need to add all that. But I did. And he wrote back to me and said, sure, I'll be your friend. Do you want to have dinner? And so then we had dinner and um, I just was so intrigued by him. I'd never met anybody like him. He didn't grow up in the church. Um, not that, I mean, I grew up in the church and I have so many people I love who grew up. We love people who grew up in the church. But it can be refreshing, yeah, when it's a different story. He was unchurched um, and he was he was starting this relationship with Christ. And he was sort of like, curious about it and he had wow. been he had been praying for the first time in his life and asking God to bring a woman into his life that would um that he could love more and more every day that would b- make him closer to Christ and that would that he could start a family with and so we just wow. became these really close friends and we started hanging out and hanging out and hanging out and um we started going to a church in Brooklyn together, Brooklyn Tabernacle, and um, which is yes, incredible. And yeah. he just, he just, the closer I got to him, the more I liked him. And he had integrity and his yes was yes, his no was no. And I just had this feeling like 
this was this was the person. And I'll never forget, we were walking on the streets one day in New York City, and he turned to me and he said, Jess, were you this special before? And I was like, before what? <laughs> and he said, before you got your heart broken, were you this special? And I said, I don't know, but the fact that you would even ask me that question is really beautiful because I... I was, so we were, so backing up just a little bit, we were on like our second time of hanging out and he asked me and he said, um, Jessica, you, you keep talking about how like you had been hurt and he didn't even know I'd been married or anything. And he said, do you, do you want to just tell me like what happened? And I remember thinking like, I know that there's not really a stigma about divorce, but when you're divorced, it feels like a stigma and it feels like people aren't necessarily dreaming of like meeting a divorced girl. In my mind, that's what I felt. So I thought, all right, I'll just tell him the truth and I probably won't see him again. And so I told him what had happened. I told him that it it was an affair within my family. It was really messy. It was really painful. And he said to me, he said, what about the the other girl? And I said, what about her? And he said, well, where is she? And I said, well, I love her. She's, She's in my family. I love her. And he was like, how do you love her? And I said, oh, well, because if the gospel is real at all, then it applies to the details of our lives right now. And that means that forgiveness is something that we extend to everybody, just like God extends to us. And so uh, it's not a testament to me. It's a testament to who God is and what he's taught us. And I said, she's in my life, and I'm so grateful for that. And he looked at me like, and he'll, he'll say this now. He said, I'd, I'd never met anyone like that. I'd never heard a story like that. And the thing that I was afraid that would turn him away, that I would never see him again, was actually the thing that made him want to get to know me more. Wow, that's amazing. Gosh. So you ended up, you obviously married him. I did. And then you, do you guys don't live in New York anymore? We don't. We right? So we, we met in New York and then... Um, he got um, he got his own show, his own radio show, own morning show in Boston, and so we moved up there, and we were there until the twenty uh, pandemic in twenty twenty, um, and we moved out of the city to the country, and it's been it's been a, a different season for us. Um, it's been a good season, but it's been something that we never anticipated at all. We always thought we'd be in the city, um, and TJ's kind of had a sabbatical from the radio like that that the pandemic has really changed a lot of the world, but specifically for radio, it really changed things like with people not being in their cars, not being on the road for a while. It really, it just changed everything. And so a lot of shows were cut. Right. You know, people don't think, yeah, you, it's, you, you, you don't, unless, until you start really hearing the stories, the, the way the pandemic, you know, kind of really ended a lot of things that were just the norm. Um, in, in its, I mean, like the streaming, the music streaming business is the is the music business has changed altogether. So anyway, so yeah, that's kind of crazy. But it's it's been it's been good. I mean, it's been really good, and I think that God is he's up to something. Yeah. That's that's really good, and um, we are grateful for this season, even though it's not something that we would have necessarily chosen and we definitely didn't expect, but it's it's been like this rich time of togetherness and and growing and um it's been good. So in a matter of 8 years, you've had four children mm-hmm. and you lost one of them. Mm-hmm. Was this was was uh, Luca your second mm-hmm. baby? Mhm. Okay, so you've had Charlie. Mm-hmm. Charlie is your oldest, right? Yeah. Your oldest daughter. Yeah. And then 
can you just, you know, talk about the, the because there are different pockets to loss. Mm-hmm. And when you losing your marriage, that's a grief. Grief is grief. I, I always say pain is pain, no matter how you want to spell it. It still has four letters. Yeah. But losing a child, there's something about that for women mm-hmm. that is just. It's almost there aren't a lot of aren't enough words to describe its intensity. Yeah. Um, how do you come back to life from that for you? Um, because you carried Luca to term, did you mm-hmm, not? Mm-hmm. Yeah, wow. and it was, um, I, you know, I mean, we we don't. It's interesting. I think I read this. I definitely read the statistic, but I might get the number wrong. It's something like eighty-six, or maybe even higher than that, percentage of the things that we worry about on a regular basis never happen. Right. So the things that we're afraid of happening, they just don't. And then these things they come in and they blindside us. And it was something that you know, it's just like shocking um yeah we were we were prepared to bring him home and right before nine months um I didn't wasn't feeling him move which is which is really scary and uh it's like this this story that I can step into like uh, easily in my mind because it's just burned in your memory but um I took my my toddler at the time with me because the hospital was every hospital in Boston is incredible, and but ours was not very far, and so they said, "Come on in and let's let's take you know let your fears to rest, and we'll just put them on the Doppler." And and everyone assumed everything would be fine, and so I take my she was two and a half at the time daughter with me. We go to the hospital, and we just we're not a priority because nothing seems super wrong, so we wait a long time. And in the, the whole time I'm feeling him not move. And there is definitely some anxiety building up inside yeah, of me. Yeah. And um, they finally call me back and they put a Doppler on my belly. And my belly is just like huge, you know, like right about to give birth, just really big. And Charlie, my daughter, she's just right, right on me, right with me. And the nurse starts moving it around. And um, he's so big that you should just hear the heartbeat right away. Like it's not, it's not like when they're tiny and they have to really find it. And she's really kind and she's like, well, maybe it's the machine, she tries a different machine. And and then it's just like, it's like this nightmare that you're just like, I, I can't even. And then they're like, well, let's do an ultrasound. And at this point I call TJ and I say, I think you need to come into the hospital because they can't find Luca's heartbeat. And um, and he gets there and they they just say very, you know, very matter of fact, there's, there's no heartbeat. And... I remember saying out loud, what does that mean? Because it was almost like this, like emotional response. Like what does, how, what does that mean in my life? Like, how can I be a mother who doesn't have a baby that comes home? How he's inside of me? How is he dead? What, and the doctor very matter of factly says it means he's dead. And I was like, right. I know what that means. But TJ said, um, he said, can you guys give us a, can you give us some time alone? And can can everybody leave? And so they left, and we prayed, and we prayed, and we asked God um, if He can give Luca back to us. I mean, we can raise him. Can He do that? And obviously, if not, then we know where He is. Um, and it all felt really surreal. I wasn't sobbing. I was just like, but you know what's so interesting? And I always I always feel like um, God God gives us grace in these moments. And I'm not saying this is the bow and this is beautiful at all because it was horrible it is horrible and it's tragic but my daughter through the whole thing and she's 
she wasn't normally like this, like, but she was just kissing my face, like kissing my mm-hmm. face. And I think oh, about yeah. the woman like anointing Jesus's tears, like feet with his tears. And I just think of there was something about like her constantly like kissing her my face that was like this grace right there, this presence, this love yeah. Yeah. that yeah. I needed. Yeah. And I and I remember and even having her with me, like I was still her mom and I couldn't I couldn't go to this dark space yet. And then um at and then we were getting transferred to a room to deliver and my sister my sister was already in Boston because she was helping me with Charlie. And so um, she came to take Charlie. And at that point, it felt really real because I saw my sister and we just, she was like crying. Yeah, and it's yeah. like, you want to protect the people. It's so strange. Like in grief, it's like you almost step out of yourself to try to protect the other people in your life to not feel it so much. And I just kept telling her, I was like, I'll be okay. I'll be okay. Which is like so pitiful and ridiculous. And then everyone had these ridiculous like Joker-esque smiles for Charlie, our daughter, to try to just make it fine. Um, but so so then they left and then it was just like um, reality. And it was reality that I couldn't imagine. And it's also reality. You know, people love to say things like, you're so strong and I could never do what you do. And, um, and it's like, well... None of us, like, I only did it because I had to. I didn't wake up being like, I feel really strong. My baby should die. Like, I should, I should really just grieve a child today. It's like, it's this strange kind of people try to give you this compliment, but it feels very othering. It feels like, well, I think all of us would just probably try to keep surviving the best that we can. And it's not this like mantle that I want or I, it's not an accolade. Um, and so, And I remember, though, my nurses, I had two different nurses, Jen and Jenny, and they would come in because they start Pitocin, which which starts um, labor because you have to give birth. And I remember even thinking, like, well, how do you like how does the baby come out? And it's like it's you have to give birth. I mean, it's the same. It's the same thing. You're giving birth to your child who has died. And, And so it's it's this really physical, spiritual, emotional thing. Um, but Jen came and she held my hand and she had actually been with me when I gave birth to Charlie, which was really incredible. And she was just listening. And I felt compelled to tell her about my first marriage. And I felt compelled to tell her that I've seen tragedy before and I've seen what God has done. And, and like, I, I know, and, and this is, this is really hard and this is really horrible and I don't really understand how, but I know that God heals hearts. And and I, I think that he's gonna keep doing that for me. And she was just listening and like crying and, and I don't even know where her faith is, but she was- And that, this is a nurse. This is just a nurse in the hospital. This was a nurse that was with me and holding my hand and would cry with me and I would cry. And um, I remember TJ playing um, one of uh, Dr. Tony Evans' sermons we just love him. He's this this preacher in Texas yeah, who's incredible. Yeah, and yeah. he was talking about, I, I don't remember everything, but he said something. He said, when, when you don't understand what's happening, God is going to blow your mind. And I just remember thinking, I don't understand this at all, but God, I believe that you're who you say you are. And I believe that you that you're here with us. And there was a whole night where I was sort of in passive labor, where I wasn't in a lot of pain, but there was contractions happening and 
TJ just crawled into the my like cot and I had Luca right there in my belly still and I just um I just made this sort of like sobbing crying like from the depths of my soul and it's something that I think about now and I think I think the fact that TJ was there with me like it was this togetherness that that I couldn't have anticipated and it was actually like holy in a way and sacred and bonding and and um and it was like this this really painful time of suffering but I wasn't alone and I knew I wasn't alone and 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 then it was like time to give birth to Luca and Rita you know it wasn't horrible which like birth is birth and it is sacred and there's something really precious about meeting your child even if they're not alive and I, and that's not a sentence that I would have said before but there was like this holiness in the room and by that time my mom had come um all three of my brothers had come they had come from California and Maryland and Delaware and they had they had gotten there and um we all like held him and that was um you know like when when um it's like this unbelievable thing for someone to give you your baby and say, you can hold him and you know you have to give him back. And it was this, this, this holy moment and really sad. And also he was so peaceful, like he could have just been sleeping. And, um, but also <laughs> it was my family in the room and we have always, for as long as I can remember, just talked and talked and talked and talked. And we had moments of just talking and it almost felt normal, which is really hard to even like there's the cognitive dissonance around that is insane. But, you know, you think of grief as this place that you go where you're not yourself and it's not true. You're still yourself. And actually, sometimes the things that the things that you need stand out in a way that um, it's like this this mirror to assure you that you're still here, like. I, I'm skipping ahead a little bit, but at Luca's funeral, my my dad did the funeral, and my parents are both um, they were both English majors. My pop taught English, and they they have this kind of like loving sparring that they do with words, and they always have. And my mom spoke something at the funeral, and she said um, she said the enemy is a stealer, and my pop, <laughs> under his breath at my son's funeral, corrected her and said thief, very quietly. <laughs> But I looked at TJ and I just had to bite my tongue. I had been crying, but I had to like <laughs> act, like actively not laugh because I was like, my parents are still my parents at my son's funeral, correcting each other's English. And like, thank God for that. It was something that was familiar that made me think like, not all is lost, which I know is like, is crazy, but, but grief is not a life sentence where you go to jail and you no longer get to live. Right. Right. You get That's to live. So good. That's so good to say that because people treat it like it is sometimes. Yes. They treat, they treat a person. My husband, he went back to the radio station like two days after Luca, Luca died and he was on the air and, but he was, he was like trying to say hi to people in the building 
that he always said hi to, they would they would leave the room so as not to look at him because they treat you like a leper. And it's I don't I don't think it's malevolent. I don't think I think it's just we're so uncomfortable with the idea of grief and loss and tragedy and death. And we don't know how, like our culture doesn't have, we don't, we don't, we can't catch it. There's no way for, like even if you study the Jewish culture, they they have rituals, they know what to do for grief. They have things that you do. But in our culture, it's like, we don't know what to do. We, we just hope that they're okay, but good, we don't wanna see it and we don't wanna talk to it. It's so uncomfortable. But like to understand that we are still ourselves and we still, like TJ and I, we, we would still find things funny. And that was like this light, that was like a, okay, so not all is lost and I'm going to, I'm somehow going to, to make it. And, you know, it's this slow, it's, just, it's not like one day I was like, I'm fine. I'm, I, I mean, I would never use the word like, I'm fine. But it wasn't like one day where I was like, oh, like this is okay it will always be tragic, but there was this slow like motion of I was starting to be more okay. And like I was starting, there was a time when I didn't want to see anybody. I didn't want to see anybody at all. Only my mom, only my sister, only some family members, then only a very close friend. But even like two of my very best friends in the world, when I was in labor, they booked flights to Boston and I, I guess I guess someone asked me, I don't I don't remember it, but all I know is after I had Luca, they were gonna come stay, like be with us. And I was like, I don't, I don't want them to I don't want them to come. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry, like this might really hurt their feelings, but I don't want them to come. And I had to be very honest with two of my best friends in the entire world and a testament to them. They said, Jessica, this is about you and what you need. And if you don't need us to come right now, we'll just come later. The person who's grieving their world becomes very, very small. And all, all they can do really is sort of take care of themselves and, and, and kind of take one foot in front of the other, but they can no longer take care of other people. They can't take care of their feelings. They can't, I had, I had a, another really dear friend who, um, she had a baby boy a couple months after I had Luca. And I, I told her, I said, I said, you know, I, I love you, but I can't, I can't be with you in this season emotionally I just can't I can't do it and I'm so sorry and I'm just gonna have to like duck out for a little bit and again to her credit like she said I completely understand and we didn't talk for a long like six months maybe we didn't talk for a long time and um and then we started talking and um and we're we're back and but I I just there was like yeah but to know that that's what you needed and that she could meet you on that road and say that's fine that's fine you know Again, that that the honesty of of putting your feelings right out there and and risking it, but but knowing what you need in the season that you need it to to heal, and you know what I'm saying. Like I, I yeah. that's just true true bravery to to say what you need and to know what you need, even if what you need isn't what somebody else would do. You know. Yeah, or even when you know what that what you need will probably hurt some people's feelings because it's suddenly a different, it's a different thing. Yeah. Um, but I will say one moment that I did feel like something is different. Um, I, my, my closest friend in Boston was pregnant with her first baby when Luca died. And um, 
I, she was in our building and she was a really close friend and I didn't want to lose her. And so, Mm -hmm. and I didn't even want to like step, step back from her life. And I, we would text and she would say, I feel really bad being pregnant around you. And I would say, um, thank you. Like, you know, and I said, it's okay. Like, is it okay if we just don't actually like really talk about it, but we still take walks and just talk about other things? Like, can I, I'm probably not going to ask you like what the doctor said of the ultrasound, if that's okay. Mm -hmm. And she was like, absolutely. And, um, she's from another country and she doesn't have any family here. And she was having her first baby in the hospital. And this was maybe, maybe I want to say like four or five months later. And I said to her, I said, Janine, um, who's visiting you in the hospital when you have your baby? And she said, oh, like, probably no one. Totally fine. I'm so grateful to have a baby. And I said, well, could TJ and I visit? And she said, no, I don't think, nope, I don't think you need a visit. And I said, well, what what if I felt like I wanted to visit because I love you and you're having your first baby and this is a really big deal? And what if I felt like it was okay if I did? And, um, She'd say, well, I wouldn't stop you, but I have zero expectation of you to visit. And so and so TJ was like, Jess, I, you don't need to do this. You don't need to be a martyr. And I was like, well, but I actually really, I think I can do this. I feel like there's grace to do it. And I know I don't need to. And even if I'm like, we're on our way and I don't want to, I'll just turn around. It's okay. Mm-hmm. And so we go and we're sort of praying and and um, we go. It's the same hospital where I had had Luca like four or five months before, the same floor. And um, we go in and knock on the door. And Rita, there is this grace in the room. And I, I really feel like, and there's, they have their little baby, a little tiny baby girl, and she's perfect and she's beautiful. And they're, they're exhausted and they're happy and they're happy to see us. And we love them very much. And I want them to know that I, that I love them very much. And, and right away, my friend says, do you want to hold her? And I did. I wanted to hold her. And I took her and, and her husband says, oh, look, like, that's definitely a mom right there. What a mom move because I'm standing up moving around a little bit. And I just felt a lot of grace. And I felt like this idea that I could move forward and not be someone who's always defined by my pain. And that was really freeing because I didn't want, because Rita, there are pregnant women everywhere. Like, especially when your baby dies, they multiply. They, they're everywhere and every commercial is about pregnant women and every store is about maternity clothes and I was like I can't run from this I can't hide from this and and I was like I don't want to be someone who's always so raw and like can't handle life because people are having babies and so I felt like this piece that was like you're going to be okay it takes time trust me I've got you and 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 I held this baby and I was really genuinely grateful to hold her. I was grateful she was well, that she was there, that my friends were parents. And it felt like this very, like there was a way forward. And that that gave me a lot of hope to just be like a normal functioning person in a society where people have babies. That is, to me, you know, we, we say those things that'll preach, but it really does. There is a, there is a, a beauty that God gives you. I mean, I, I've never personally had the um, opportunity to, to be pregnant. But when I adopted Justice um, six years later, I mean, it's a whole long story, but um, six years later, um, they thought I had uh, cancer and I had to have a hysterectomy after 
already spending so much money saving my uterus from fibroid tumors. And I just remember the, the literal grief of losing the ability of the dream that you had that you just keep holding on to because, no, God can do this, God can do this. And, and the reality of this is where this story ends. Like this is where this story about this ends and it's never going to be the same after this. And, and then just having the aha moment, you know, that I was six years into um, being a mother and that somehow the Lord had known that that moment would occur and that he had padded me with six years of justice, that I, the grace, like you talk about that grace that just moves in and it just moved in the hospital that day in such a powerful way as I had to sign that paper that said, this operation renders you un unable to ever bear a child and you will be barren. And to sign, it's almost like signing away your, your promise, you know? And, and I remember signing that and feeling this grace around me that, you know, I, I just, I wanted to just see my six-year-old so bad and was so grateful for, six years of being marinating in motherhood and that somehow the beauty of being marinated in motherhood was enough to say it's okay to never have seen the dream. You know what I'm saying? So I understand not in the same situation, obviously, but there is, there is a choice grace when you're willing to walk it out that God can so freely hand you that it almost is like a song singing over you in the moment where you can actually walk away from that moment and be like, honestly, I don't know how I did that, but it was beautiful when I did it. Yeah. And I probably don't know if I do it right now again for a while, but in our last like few minutes here, did that, did Luca's passing and the loss of, of his life being lived in your presence, um, did that stir your, your your want and desire to write a book? Yeah, you know what? Actually, those same friends um, who I visited in the hospital that I was just talking about, um, I remember talking to them about this and, and, and saying, like, I never, I always knew I wanted to write a book, but I never, I never knew what to write it about, really. And saying, I mean... It's a heck of a cost, and I wouldn't choose the cost, but I know what to write about, at least for this yeah. book. And it and it's sort of, it sort of has written itself because um, I would just be up through the night, like um, like I said before, just in such deep suffering, and I would have to find the words. And it was like these pockets of air that I would find that was an alternative to drowning. And that's and even TJ would get to the point where he would be like, "You need to go write." you need to write like I can tell you're, you're having a hard time just mm -hmm. go write and it would it would make it would make a um I could go on like I would write and then I could be like okay I can do this I can do this yeah. for another day and so yeah absolutely and um it's now you're done with the book right I am I you know what's actually interesting is my I somebody um from Harvard like hired her to edit the first round and she did a beautiful job and I'm very grateful for that. And then I'm um, doing my last round of edits and my dad is doing it now. And he 
is brutal and wonderful. And it's, you know, Rita, it's insane because it's this book about grief and we have this concentrated time together as we go over edits and we laugh so much about, and it's like, it's this, it's this like extra grace that brought God has brought. Like, again, I didn't know I would get to live here near my parents again. And, and now I have this time with my dad. That's really precious. And um, it's also like, it's vulnerable because I write about some real, I mean, I wrote this book, not ever imagining me and my dad going through it together with a fine tooth comb. So like, you know, writing about the, my milk coming into my breast being rock hard. And he's like, oh, rock hard breast, Jess, huh? And I'm like, you know, my 13 year old self is just dying in my chair. But then I can laugh. I'm like, yeah, rock hard breast. That's right. <laughs> so, I mean, he is the, he is the, uh, um, he is the correct grammar guy to yes. correct stealer to thieve. Yes, <laughs> yes. He knows. He knows. Uh, he knows what he's doing with English, and um, it's just it's a really cool thing for our relationship too. And it's like this extra gift from God because um, you know we don't we don't know how long we get to be with the people we love on Earth, and and um, I just every minute with the people that you love is really precious. And so in this time of life is so busy with like little kids and it's not, it's not usual that I get to spend this much time with another adult. And so it's really, it's really precious. It's really cool. So yeah, we are, we are coming to the end of it. And, um, I am. Do you have a publisher that's going to take it? I'm publishing it myself. I'm not even looking for a publisher okay. at this time. And oh. I think for the first round, that's kind of what we decided is the best yeah. way to go. And then we'll see We'll see what goes from there, like what happens from there. I definitely am open to working with a company yeah. at some point. But, um, and we're looking at a fall release, which is exciting. Mm-hmm. That's so good. I can't wait. I, you are one of my favorite writers, so I can't wait. Yeah, that's so kind. Those of you out there that are listening to this, you need to start following her on Instagram. Her Instagram handle is just Jessica Latcha, right? Yep. Jessica Latcha, L-A-T-S-H-A-W. Even her post, the way that she yeah. writes, you will fall in love with the way that she even writes about life and living and raising uh, Charlie, Willett, and Noah, right? Those are your, your girls' names. Um, well, I love this. Thank you so much Thank for being you, a part Rita. of this and for just sharing. I know your story is so huge, but for sharing some of the most intimate, really brutal parts of your of your journey and and giving hope mm. to people. That's that's my goal here. Is I want to encourage people and give people, you know, just hope for yeah. for just living yeah. life and living life in faith and living life struggling in faith and living life questioning yeah. faith and and just knowing that regardless of where you're at, we're all, we're all struggling. We all feel, you know, the seasons as they come harder sometimes for others than, than for some, but we're all in the same boat. And thank you so much for just how you've breathed life. Thank you. Rita, it's such an honor. Like I never would have imagined I'd get to, you know, be having this conversation with you. It's a real honor. And you are, you're a force. You are a force that is so needed and you're a breath of fresh air and, I just so appreciate your bravery and your vulnerability and your storytelling and your um, hard work, like you continue to work on your craft. And um, it's just, it's, and you're, again, like I know I said this before, but you're, what you do gives people permission to also be honest and also be vulnerable in a space um, that is 
within the church and outside of the church, but that is um, something that really makes me very, very excited. So thank you so much with, for connecting with me here. You're so welcome. You're so welcome. Thanks, Jess.